What the hell? What the hell? What the hell is up? What the? Hi, my name is Claire and I'm here to chat with artists, creators, and inspired folks about passion and their visions for success on an earth that's melting. We'll talk about identity, creativity, community, and how art can cultivate healing and change. Along the way, you'll hear music from rising indie artists. I believe the art is meant to connect us. When we listen, respond, and create, we connect and have the power to make change, even while living on this chaotic earth. So what the hell is up with you? Hello, welcome back to the show, stars. What the hell is up? <sighs> well, okay, it's fully October feels going on and I'm just so excited to be sitting down um, to finish this episode and record right now. Um, I picked up a rosemary maple latte, which is just like so autumnal and honestly, um, kind of going through it this morning. Um, the content of today's episode is heavier and has really been, I think, just thoughtful on my heart for the last few weeks. Um, but now that I'm sitting down to finish it up, I'm excited to share it and I'm really excited for you to listen. September 30th was Orange Shirt Day, which is also called the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, which is a day meant to recognize the impact and history of residential schools in Canada. On October 11th in the States, we recognized Indigenous Peoples Day, a holiday meant to commemorate Native American culture in the U.S. and bring truth to the violence of colonization in this country. In today's episode, I'm sitting down with my friend Misty Rose and asking what the hell is up? Misty is a friend and podcast listener who I met back in January when I was working on the COVID ward at the VA hospital. At the time, she was working as a CNA. Now she is finished with nursing school and busy studying for the nursing licensure exam, preparing to become a registered nurse. Misty is a veteran of the U.S. Air Force and a complete badass, also an amazing storyteller, as you'll hear. Today's episode is about her curation of an upcoming event at Seattle University called Honoring Indigenous Voices. In 2020, Misty initiated this event in hopes to bring a panel of Indigenous community members together to discuss issues in Indigenous communities and to simply share space and stories for attendees to listen and ask questions. The focus of last year's event is continuing into this year's event, which will be happening on October 25th. There will be a virtual portion and a live portion. In the second annual Honoring Indigenous Voices event, the panel members will lead the discussion on intergenerational trauma, specifically surrounding mandated boarding school and residential schools for First Nations and Native American youth in the 19th and 20th centuries in both the U.S. and Canada. Misty has a heart that I resonate with completely in the way that she believes in the power of story and asking frank questions. I caught up with her in my podcast studio over tea and pumpkin scones. We talk about what drew her to this work, the work of healing from intergenerational trauma, and the impact of residential school in her own family story. 
Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, residential schools were present in both the United States and Canada after the enactment of the Indian Civilization Act of 1819 in the U.S. By the efforts of the residential school system, hundreds of thousands of Native American children were forcibly removed from their homes and sent to church-run schools that had a violent mission to erase their Native culture and indoctrinate them into white Christian society. The reality of these schools was devastating, and many, many children suffered under the violence of abuse, neglect, and separation from their culture and families. The last residential school in Canada closed in 1996, which is so recent. Needless to say, the trauma existing from this recent history continues to reverberate through our Native communities, and yet I will be frank in admitting that I was not taught this reality, and much of it seems to have been erased from history books for U.S. children. As you'll hear from Misty in this episode, the first step in justice or reconciliation is telling the truth, as hard as it may be. This, like I said, is a denser, heavier episode, but it's also one that is so special to me, as sharing this conversation with my friend Misty was comfortable and inspiring. I want to kindly provide a trigger warning for issues related to violence against Indigenous peoples, addiction, and mental illness. I'll let you lean into getting to know Misty, her background, and her amazing work with the Indigenous Peoples Institute at Seattle University. Also, in today's episode, you're going to hear the song Child of the Government by Jaylee Wolf, and listen to the end of the episode to hear the story behind the inclusion of this song. Yeah, he's a child of the government. Hi, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm here with my friend Misty. Misty, what the hell is up? (laughs) Hi Claire, what the hell is up? (laughs) Thank you for being here. I'm really excited to chat with you. Thank you. Um, I'll do my introduction. Yeah, please. Good afternoon. My name is Misty. I'm from Yakanuki, my dad's side. And I'm really excited to be here today to have this conversation with you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. And yeah, I'm very blessed that you would decide to hang out for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I love this podcast. I, yeah, I've learned so much from like your conversations and it's just like such a way, it's one of my favorite ways to learn too, is to just listen to people talking. So it's, it feels natural. It feels easy to listen to. So yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thank you. <laughs> I love that because it's my main motivators. I agree. I just think listening to people is one of the biggest ways that we can like learn and also love people is mm-hmm. just through listening and yeah. podcasts are such a, a cool modern gift that you can just <laughs> have somebody's voice in your ear, like no matter where you are. Yeah. It's truly magical. Yeah. <laughs> Where are you most of the time when you listen to podcasts? Oh, um, well, yesterday I went, I like woke up in the evening because I worked the night shift the night before and I walked 
down the street and I got a coffee and then I like wandered into this little park over here called Nora's Woods Mm -hmm. and I was like in a forest listening to a podcast. (laughs) Sounds so like October whimsical. It was, it was, yeah. And I mean, I listen in the car, but I listen like on my night shifts. I listen when I'm on, I love to go on long walks and I like walking and listening to a podcast. It was just, I listen in the kitchen when I'm getting my coffee ready. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Where do you listen to them? <laughs> well, specifically yours. I listen when I'm driving, um, especially like this last summer when I was doing my senior practicum, driving all the way up to Issaquah and back to Auburn. Oh, it was that's a long right. drive. Yeah. So it was really nice to listen. It was like perfect timing. And then otherwise, I usually listen when I'm cleaning my kitchen or cake, like cooking. So definitely when I'm like multitasking. <laughs> well, coming back to my original question, because we didn't quite, I didn't hear like, what the hell is up with you? Like, what are you up to? Um, well, I just finished my BSN program at Seattle University in the middle of August. So I just graduated, finally. And I did some traveling uh, to visit family in Montana, my parents in British Columbia, and then my best friends in D.C. And now I'm finally, like, hunkering down to study for the NCLEX um, in late October. So I'm really, really happy to be back into, like, a rhythm of studying and a normal sleep schedule. So that's <laughs> like traveling's great and fun, but yeah. I wasn't getting as much studying as I wanted to, which is to me super important. <laughs> so when your test is coming up in a few weeks. Yeah, on the nineteenth. The nineteenth. But meanwhile you're also getting ready for this big event, which yes. we're gonna talk about. Yes. So can you can you share about that? Sure. Um I work with Dr. Christina Roberts. She's the director of the Indigenous Peoples Institute at Seattle University, and we're doing the second annual Honoring Indigenous Voices. It's going to be hybrid this year. Um, We're going to do October 25th around 6 to 8, so the public and whoever else wants to be a part of it can view the webinar portion and still be able to ask some questions when it's question time. And then we're going to have three Indigenous panelists, and we did last year with the first annual uh, over, uh, what is it called? Over, I guess, Zoom okay. mostly because we couldn't be in person at the time. Right. So now we're half and half. Now we can have some students at the auditorium on campus. And that one I know is only going to be students allowed because of the restrictions around COVID. Mm-hmm. And then everybody else can participate through webinar. That's great. Um, so the first honoring indigenous voices you were part of the group of students who decided to put on the first event yes it was completely my idea it was a hundred percent a vision that I it was was a I don't call it a vision it was like a project I wanted to create and yes I did have a vision for what it should be and then COVID happened Mm -hmm. so I definitely envisioned the auditorium, the students, the panel having three speakers, because I just really like that style of presenting, because you get different perspectives, and I wanted to create an environment where the students could ask questions. That was my number one reason for doing it this way, is to allow students to learn about Indigenous issues, learn about Indigenous current events, and kind of like put the whole picture together that the historical stuff that has happened in the United States is not separate from what's happening now Mm -hmm. in our communities as Indigenous people. And 
to have a space where students can really ask questions and it wasn't going to be a lot of pressure on just one presenter to try to answer all those questions. It was going to be on three presenters to answer the best question or answer the question in a way that they knew in their life's experience and you'd get different perspectives, different generations and different fields of work that they're in. So that's, that was like kind of how I, how I wanted it to go. And that's what happened (laughs) for the first annual. And so I'm excited for the second one too. That's so awesome. Um, Well, I want to actually backtrack a little bit. Can you like share more about where you're from and Mm -hmm. how you ended up here and like also how you found the Indigenous Peoples Institute. Yeah. So I'm Crow on my mom's side, which we're from Montana, the Absalaga people. We have a really large reservation there now in southeast Montana, and that's where my family lives, my grandparents, my aunts, uncles, cousins. And then on my dad's side, I'm Kootenai, which is Tunaka in our language. And his tribe is actually split by the border so most of it's in Canada and a couple of families and bands live in the states too and some of them are in Montana some are in northern Idaho but my dad's um, tribe or my dad's band is actually on the British Columbia side and it's it's kind of like this whole area yes through British Columbia and Montana Mm -hmm. yeah it's a traditional territory the traditional territory of the Kootenai people is split by the border And so when we have things that are going on and there's things we want to do, we have to deal with customs. We have to deal with the two different governments. Especially during COVID. Mm, Yes. The the border being so locked down. Yeah. It was a really terrible history, in my opinion. So my great-grandmother's sister and her family were really young girls. They were really, really, really young girls um, when they got split up. They, her sister happened to be fishing down... Kootenai River and that part of the river happened to be in current day Idaho and so when the border got put in um, like a handful of people and a handful of families were down there fishing and when they tried to go back home up to Yakanuki they weren't allowed home ever they were never allowed to go back home and so they lived as like a really kind of outcast poor band for a really long time for many many decades um, Mm -hmm. before they got their recognition and then before they got like the ability to make money and so they were a really poor band for a really long time. But the rest um, of their family and community was... The rest of us were up in British Columbia. Okay. Yeah. So we have really like close cousins that are relatives that are down there now. Um, so it's just really... There's a lot. Like I said, like American history, Canadian history, isn't just something that happened in a book a long time ago. It still has lasting effects on like how we live today and like our structure, our social structures our family structures and you know we're fighting against a lot of things and I think the one thing that people don't know about is the called the Jay Treaty and so this kind of goes back to the days of when these governments came into place when Canada became Canada um, they had the Jay Treaty which took over from the crown so the crown had already had treaties in place with the indigenous peoples of Canada and so when the settler Canadians wanted to make a country they disregarded a lot of those treaties and the Jay Treaty is one that we've held on to for such a long time to be able to cross the borders oh. back and forth freely. Um, but they disregarded it? For At that time they disregarded it but we're fighting for it now and now they're kind of honoring it but this is like 70 years later right? Um, and so like my sister for example can come to school down here even though she was born in Canada because of the Jay Treaty. Okay. I was born in the States so I'm okay to be here. 
But if you wanted to go to Canada for any reason. Then I would have to go through um, Indian Affairs to be able to get citizenship. Oh. Yeah. It's very, it's a long, my mom had mm-hmm. to fight for her citizenship for 25 years through this process. So it is a process. Yeah. There's roadblocks all the time for Indigenous people. But. I mean, there's, it's just, I feel like that's a really unique issue of like, um, I guess immigration that I mm-hmm. feel like doesn't come to my mind as readily, like, because people think about like, you know, folks immigrating from other countries, but like, you're talking about a land that was one, one land, like mm-hmm. it, there was no territory. Yeah. It was wasn't one territory for a very long time. Yeah. So, like, when Canada celebrated their 150-year anniversary, a lot of Indigenous people were like, it's, it's 150 years of, like, disgrace to them. Mm-hmm. We've had thousands and thousands of years of trade and travel and, um, you know, partnerships with different kinds of Indigenous people around us, these different territories. And so it's just a really sore spot, I would say. That's understandable. Yeah. And with like ramifications that are still existing Mm -hmm. yeah still fighting still fighting for these treaties these treaty rights and it happens in both countries it's not just canada it's the states too so you grew up in montana both actually that's a good question sorry i didn't answer that one no that's okay (laughs) so i grew up um with my grandmother in montana until i was six and then when my parents got married in british columbia i moved up with them and then I did all of my schooling in Canada. I did from, like, grade one all the way through my first year of university. And then I decided to quit university at the age of 19, and I joined the U.S. Air Force. <laughs> and I moved back to the States, and I went to the Air Force for six years. What inspired that? I, well, to be honest, <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't want to be in school. I was very unhappy in school, and I just felt like I never found my place or my space uh, at the University of Calgary, and I was just very lost. I was a very lost young person, and I quit school, and I told my dad that summer that I went home that I was quitting school, and I was really hoping that he would tell my mom for me, (laughs) and he wouldn't do it. He says, you know, you, you have two options. You can either go back to school or you can join the military, but you're not staying in my house. Like, those are your only two options. And I was like, okay, great. I'll join the military. <laughs> like, not really thinking it through. And then when I did tell my mom, she was very upset and very understandably so because she, she fought so hard and worked so hard with me to get into university. Mm-hmm. And then um, the Canadian military wouldn't take me because everyone or the same thing. I wasn't a Canadian citizen technically. I was just uh, with a status card living in Canada. It's just so weird. And so the U.S. military um, took me right away. The Air Force specifically really wanted me because I scored really high on the ASVAB score. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Okay, and in the that's back. That's another. <laughs> yeah. So I got I got that. And then I think that's another reason that I found Seattle University to be such like a connection for me. It's because of people like Dr. Roberts. Um is when I first started exploring the campus two years ago, because I transferred in as a junior into the nursing program, um, I just saw this bust of Chief Seattle outside of the Indigenous Peoples Institute. And I was like, what's this? And so I like went inside, I like knocked on the door and I had no idea what it was. I just walked in 
and she was the first person I met. And she's like, the IPI is for you. Like for indigenous students, the space is for you. You can study here. You can keep food here. They have like a fridge and like a little kitchen. Whatever you need, this is your space. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the Indigenous Peoples Institute. And then the Indigenous Student Association is kind of based out of there with Dr. Roberts as our faculty um, mentor. And that's how I've gotten into this kind of work with her. And she's been a huge supporter of my dream of making this panel happen, of any initiatives that I want to do for the students. And then I was um, elected president of the Indigenous Student Association for my senior year. And so we got to do a lot of community building and making sure our Indigenous students felt like they also had support, even if it was just over Zoom once a week because of the pandemic, nobody was meeting in person. And yeah, yeah. so that's, I, that's why I do feel like I did better. Number one, I really knew I wanted to study nursing. And number two, I felt like I had a home at this university because of the IPI. That's really powerful. Mm-hmm. It's like the opposite of what happened when I was 19. Yeah. Did you not find a space like that when you were there? No, not not at the time. I hope that they do have one now. Mm-hmm. At the time, they didn't really have any space specifically. They probably had a student association for Indigenous students at Calgary, but they never had an actual space, which makes a huge difference. Well, yeah, it's like a connection point, a meeting mm-hmm. point to have some community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super important. And that's, again, creating these kind of conversations through things like honoring Indigenous voices it's just so important to create that space. And people say that all the time, but like, what does it really mean? It's a physical space and it's an intentional space of we're here to learn. We're here to talk. We're here to hopefully build a bridge to heal. Hmm. That's for me what space is. Yeah. Have you always like been somebody who like is interested in this kind of leadership? Because it seems like really... I mean, it's it's wonderful to be a part of something that's already existing, but you mm-hmm. wanted to like be more of a leader in creating something new. Thank you for asking that question because I don't, I didn't see that that way at the time as like leadership. I just saw something that was missing um, that I wanted to be there. I don't know if that makes sense. Sure. Um, I really wanted to bring indigenous academics that I respected to my school to have this conversation. I wanted my fellow students and cohort members to to learn some of the things that I've learned growing up with these people as role models. And to be and same thing, to number one is to ask questions, is to be able to ask questions. That's another thing that's missing in a lot of what we're learning about our culture right now when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, when we're talking about things that are happening against the Asian community. It's that we see what's happening, but where do we start these conversations? Where do we go? And I feel like the majority of us don't have that outlet yet. Mm. Um, even in academia, we don't really have that. And so that's what, that was something that I saw missing. And I really wanted that to happen at my school while I was in school. And I knew it was going to be a very quick two years. That's why I jumped right on it right away to make the first annual happen. And that's the number one reason I called it, even then I called it the first annual Honoring Indigenous Voices. That was also intentional because what I want it to grow to be one day is a conference. I want it to be a place where you're going to continue to not only honor Indigenous Voices, you're going to encourage the larger academic community because the Jesuit institution is also a huge global network already. 
that's just who they are as an organization and as an institute. And so I definitely latched onto that and want to, to create that space and make it bigger and make it like a three or five day long conference one day, like 10 years down the road. That's what I imagine this to be is people to come. Maybe we can do it in the summer when people have more flexibility and to learn from the indigenous speakers to share their stories and the ultimate goal, my ultimate goal would to be to invite other indigenous speakers from other parts of the world to come speak and learn and share. That's That would be the dream. <laughs> that sounds incredible. I like that you just spoke out that vision here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, so when I remember we kind of talked about how another like local indigenous I think event that you had gone to also had inspired some thought about like a difference that you wanted to bring to an event that you would make yes so in the military when I was becoming a staff sergeant we had to go through training called airman leadership school and one of the things we had to write was called non-examples So yes, of course, it's really easy to say, this is the kind of leader I look up to. This is the kind of leader I want to be. But sometimes it's harder to look at leaders that you've seen and say, that's not what I want to do. And why? Not just, you know, this doesn't go well for me, but why? Like really dig into why did it make you feel this way when Mm -hmm. you were under that kind of leadership? Why do you not want to be that kind of leader? So we call them non-examples. And the non-example that I saw while I was at South Seattle College was like an event for Indigenous Peoples Day. And I just felt like that panel, when they when they did their event, it was very degrading to the students. And I didn't agree with it. Um, it's like if you're going to create these spaces for education and you're going to come to an educational institution, you don't talk at your students. Like, you don't talk down to your students. You invite them in for a conversation and leave space for questions. And it was just like, they were not there for that. (laughs) That's what I felt. They weren't there to create that. They were just there to talk at the students and then leave. And so I left early. I didn't stay for the rest of it. I was pretty upset. And so that was my non-example of, I want to do something better. And I know I can do something better with the right people. And again, it's all about students. Like, because... I keep going back to that, even with our new panel that we're building, again, for the second annual, my number one is to create that space for students, because you do have students from all kinds of backgrounds in Seattle. Um, Some of them are refugees, some of them are local, some of them are indigenous, like there's a whole mix of people, first generation, that want to go to university, that want to become lawyers and nurses, and doctors, and social work, and filmmakers, and like all of them want to be here for a reason, and they all want to make change in the world, like that's the common thing that I've seen, like I'm so proud of our young generation, and to be able to bring them together, and give them the space to learn, I keep saying space, I need to find a different word, and to be able to give them a time, and an outlet to learn something about Indigenous people, but be welcome to ask anything they want to ask and to allow them to be vulnerable to allow them to look at what intergenerational trauma looks like for them and their Mm -hmm. families um and that was one thing that I learned from one of the speakers last year 
Anna Hansen. She's also an alum of SU. Back in the 80s, she got her master's uh, from SU. And one of the things that she taught me is that intergenerational trauma isn't just happening in Native communities. It happens in all kinds of communities in the United States. And Native people can be leaders in healing from intergenerational trauma. This is something that we can bring to the table for other people who might be going through it. And so one example could be like Ancestry.com is a really big thing right now in the States mm-hmm. and people want to learn where they came from and want to, want to learn why there was maybe disconnects in their family or what happened back in their home country for their family to flee, to come here with nothing and to try to get away mm-hmm. from oppression. And then from that, they learn, oh, maybe that's why their grandmother or grandfather never talked about that family back there, or they never talked about wanting to pass on a language for a reason they wanted their children to be able to mesh into American, the bigger American picture and not be felt as outcasts, that's a form of intergenerational trauma. Because now you've lost a lot of family oral history and you've lost a lot of culture to try to fit into something that's not your original culture. That's what intergenerational trauma looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, think that's, I think that's really valuable to bring up because I think that is the connection point that can get lost in in some of this. And that's what um, Anna was teaching me, is that it's not intergenerational trauma, there's no monopoly on it. Like, Native people don't have a monopoly, but we recognize what it is and where it stems from, for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a point where it's about building bridges again. It's like another, more something that we have more in common than we think we do as people in this country. I think that was her point for me that I really try to hold on to. We have more things that are in common than are that we than not. <laughs> what is the other word? There there's just so much in the the human history, but ours is probably just more concentrated because we still live in our small communities whereas settler people are a bit more spread out and maybe torn apart from each other and their own communities back wherever their home country is. Yeah. I mean, I think there's also differences with, like, power that impact how it ends up affecting us in the world. But I don't know. I feel like I really appreciate the way that your idea to create honoring Indigenous voices was, like, a sense of this is a conversation that everybody can find a connection point in. Mm Mm-hmm. And you know, I feel like that does allow for deeper conversation and connection rather than setting up, I guess, more of a, like, us versus them mentality, which already exists. Yes. What was the audience like um, in the first event? Like, who was represented there? Mostly nursing. Because it was a first annual and because I wasn't even quite sure how it would be received, I did focus more on what I knew, which was the College of Nursing and my faculty. And so the majority of the students were nursing, and then we had a lot of medical students from outside of the community that wanted to join, too, through other networking. And so there was a lot of medical people, and there was also some film people in law school, like handfuls of like engineering and stuff. But I think this year it's going to be all of the colleges. I think all of the colleges will participate because it's such a supported conversation from the top down now. 
Again, I was just really nervous because it is, still is a Catholic Jesuit institution and we're talking about residential school. Yeah. And so this was this happened before the 215 unmarked graves at Kamloops, British Columbia were discovered earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And so there was still a lot that I just was unsure of, right? Because it's it's a new thing. It's something new. You just don't know how it's going to be received. And so I was definitely nervous. I didn't record it on purpose just because I just wanted it to be private. I wanted it to be whoever was in attendance to just be in attendance. But then the aftermath of the event opened my eyes to so much support and yearning for learning. And people were asking me, I'm so sorry I couldn't make the event. Can I please have the recording? Or is there a place I can find the recording? And I was like, I'm sorry we didn't record it. But definitely this year we're gonna, we're going to. And we have everybody that's going to support us. And like I said, the president is coming up with a statement um, now acknowledging the institution's role in boarding schools, Indian boarding schools and residential schools. Uh-huh. And yeah, it's just the time. It's it, To me, it's a, a time to move forward and to take responsibility and just keep going. Like what more can, what like keep asking yourself, like what can I do to, aid this conversation, aid this progress, and rebuild these relationships. Yeah. Well, I remember listening to, so you did several interviews in preparation for the first event, Mm -hmm. and one of the interviews was with um, Smokey Sumac? Yes. Is that right? Yes. Um, And Smokey is a writer, a poet, Mm -hmm. and also... A PhD candidate. Okay. Yeah. Um... But one of the things that was said in that conversation was about how, I think the thing that I really gleaned from it was that difference between, like, you guys were talking about the difference between, like, truth and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And reconciliation, like, I went to a Christian university, and it's a word that came up so much. Like, we were always talking about how to reconcile and, like, (laughs) (laughs) like, just biblical reconciliation and, like, interracial reconciliation and all of this, and... Um, I really liked what Smokey said because it was, he was getting at like, no, there's a truth phase and then there's a reconciliation phase. And like, I think we're in the truth phase. We're still very much in the truth phase. Yeah. Especially on this, this topic, Mm -hmm. because, um, this like issue of residential schools is not something I grew up learning about and is not something that I learned about in college even. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel that it's really just becoming a conversation that has affected your history in a way that's just, like, so poignant. And yet, like, it's been so darkened and... Hidden. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. How did so, how did that become the theme of the first conference? Like, how did you... So, I really loved my panelists last year. I definitely have to, like, give thanks to these people. Like I said, they I've seen their work. They have helped raise me. So, the three panelists last year was Anna Hansen, Dr. Christopher Horsleaf, and Smokey Sumac. And they've just been so supportive of my military time my going back to school time. And so when I asked them to do this panel, they said, yes, of course, we're going to do this. Um, 
And this year we're changing it up a little bit just to keep the momentum going and inviting more Indigenous guests. This year it's going to be Anna again, and then it's going to be Casey Nicholson, who's an Indigenous comedian as well as a motivational speaker. And the third is Brooke Pinkham, who's actually faculty at SU, and she works in the law department. And so continuing these conversations with these amazing people, like I said, it's just going to be better and better. But the whole process of building the panel is another thing that I learned in building last year's panel, and we're going to repeat it this year. So how we came up with the topic of navigating intergenerational trauma on the journey home is that seemed to be the thread between those three stories, those three original speakers, is they all had lots of work that they'd done in their own personal life and in their professional lives to be able to come home. And it's definitely like an identity thing. It's definitely trying to find your place in the world while also recognizing all of the damage that residential school has done to your people and your family. And how do I not only physically come home and relearn my ceremonies and my language and take back my name, it's also what can I do as my work to promote healing for my people and for mm -hmm. other Indigenous people, which is what they've all three of them have done. And again, all different ages, different generations. Anna is retired now, and so she's handing off the baton to people like me and Dr. Horse Thief and Smokey. And so she's kind of like the elder to be able to say, you are doing amazing work. Just keep going. <laughs> I've done decades of work that I've already done with Indigenous people all over, including um, like Australia. And so like just to see her example and the things that she's done to come home to herself and to her people and to create more learning for her own family and to make sure they know who and where they come from. That was just the theme across these three stories that we wow. put together. And this year, we're, we're still in that process right now, meeting with a panelist and finding out what their theme is together. Like I said, I have my vision. I have, you know, what I want, but it's even, it's, it's just more elevated than I thought it could be mm -hmm. by taking the time to build your event together to build your panel and your discussion together rather than me telling them what they're going to talk about, if that yeah. makes sense. And we definitely are going to include the discovery of the graves. That is definitely like a scientific fact that no one can deny that this is a real thing now. A lot mm -hmm. of people used to like just completely not even believe that residential school or Indian boarding schools were a real thing. But now we have undeniable evidence of the abuse and the trauma that happened to the kids that never came home. And then can you imagine what the people who did come home, what they survived, right? They were, there's, there's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and so this year we don't have the theme yet. We'll, we'll get it locked in in the next couple of weeks, but yeah, I love the process. I love being able to work with my panelists and learn more about them. I already respect them for their work, but now I get to learn more about them, work with them and then build this event together and it just makes it that much richer when it comes time for the event to come to take place. Yeah. I mean, I love that because it seems that you started with like, it's kind of like nursing. You started with assessment and you started <laughs> with investigating and just listening and like asking questions. And then the theme emerged, mm -hmm. the right theme for the right moment. And yes. I feel like it did end up becoming like so very timely mm -hmm. as I think the 
I think the headlines like coming out are creating more attention for people to be ready to listen to this kind of I hope so. story. I do hope so. I hope you're enjoying today's episode. Misty and I are going to take a little break. So grab a cup of tea, unwind for a bit, and we'll be back in a moment. Following the discovery of the site of 215 unmarked graves in Canada's Tecumlips to Squampum First Nation at the Kamloops Indian Residential School in May of 2021, Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland announced a federal Indian boarding school initiative in order to investigate the lasting impacts of Indian residential schools in the United States. Misty and I discussed Holland's approach, which is focusing on bringing truth to light prior to seeking justice through actions. So, like, what you're, you're talking about with Smokey's interview, we were talking about truth and reconciliation in Canada. They've been trying to do this for a really long time, and the United States has not really done anything as far as truth and reconciliation goes. And so now that these graves and these sites are coming up, and these are unmarked graves, like, they were never supposed to be discovered. Um, so what Deb Holland is doing is she's not even trying to call it truth and reconciliation, which I think is good. But like we said, we're still just still trying to figure out the truth part. So I don't think she's trying to even go there yet. What she wants and what she has asked the, the Jesuit institution to do is to just, in, just investigate. She just wants facts. She doesn't want anything else but facts right now. She's given them a timeline to go to their records in St. Louis and just see which tribes went to which residential schools, boarding schools in the States, um, how many students, you know, she just wants facts right now. And then from there, she'll make her next move. But I love that. Like, I love that she's taking it step by step instead of trying to like ask for all the answers and the solutions right away. Nope. She's just going to ask for facts. She's going to hold the different institutions accountable for those facts. And then we'll go from there. So I really appreciate that. And I really look up to her for that initiative. Yeah. I mean, I feel that that's much more of a sustainable approach to like eventually justice occurring because how can you have justice if you don't have like true understanding and true understanding doesn't come through any quick fix. Like it has yeah. to come through um, I don't know, more of a slow learning and, and conversation. Yes. And accountability, I would say. And so that's why I'm mm -hmm. saying like she hasn't like asked for anything else. She just wants facts. And then another part to consider for the general public is to understand that there are so many different tribes that have been affected. All tribes have been affected by this, but they're all so different from each other. They have different cultural practices. They have different languages. They have different beliefs on how this should be handled. And so that's what I'm saying. Like she's, I think she's making the right move by just asking for facts so far. And then maybe she might divvy up like, and get opinions from all these different indigenous um, tribal leaders on where to go next. Like what should the next step look like? Instead of just a blanket apology and here's the money. <laughs> here's the money for the survivors. And so now we're done talking about it. Because that's basically what Canada has done. You were mentioning how like, I mean obviously like indigenous people are so diverse like mm -hmm. in 
so many so many languages and different cultures which are like so different from one another mm-hmm. and yeah how was how has it been to, i guess bridge that yourself in in this event with your panelists coming from like different native backgrounds i took my i want to say examples and guidance for how to navigate that from my mom and from Anna. My mom and Anna Hansen, I call her Auntie Anna. They've been doing this work for decades, going into different communities. What does your mom my do? M- How did she get into that work? She's a community support worker through our nation. And she now does like family support, like teaching different families, helping families who might be at risk of losing their children from addictions and stuff like that. And so just kind of like the whole goal is to keep the families together. And so she builds programs to help, to help because she's her herself is an addict. And so is my father and they've, they've done their own work in healing themselves and putting themselves into ceremony and into culture to keep our family together. They've done that. And so she completely understands what it is, what it looks like, what addiction looks like. You know, she's had to do her own work to be able to, to do this. And so I know she's had a really, really hard life. And and I know that she's been put here for a purpose and that she's been living that purpose since I was a kid. And so she finally got into the work with Auntie Anna when she came to the nation, when Anna was invited to the nation to come do some of that healing work within our tribe and my mom really got it she picked it up right away and she just understood what was needed to heal this kind of community and like the same thing it's truth like the truth has to be spoken first before you can get into the healing process and so a lot of it was family secrets Mm -hmm. a lot of it was family um, shame and trauma and addiction and just things that happen in pretty much all indigenous communities and so the more work she did on herself in the community, and then working with people like Anna and networking, they invited her to start going to the other communities that were not Kootenai or not Crow. Same thing, just doing the work, staying for two weeks at a time, they would go to a community, and they always started with the elders. They always started with the survivors of the residential schools and boarding schools. And just to allow these elders to speak their truth, that they probably told each other things that they never told anyone in their whole life. They just held it all in from the trauma. Mm-hmm. And so the way they did it is they healed, like, the inner child is what they called it, that little girl or that little boy that was at those schools, giving them a voice, giving them an outlet, and doing same thing, doing their own work. And then they would follow up with those communities months later and start bringing the families in now and start healing the family unit and then eventually from there you go up to the community and so you're going to start making programs to heal the community and it's it's a long process it's a lot of work I am just so proud of them for being able to do that to start there and so my example is that same thing it's just you you have to look inside yourself first to be able to understand what someone else is going through and if they're from a different tribe than you you can't just go in thinking you know everything. You have to do your own internal work first, no matter what it is, and then to want to try to build those relationships. And it takes time. Nothing is going to happen overnight. 
and it takes time to build community and that's just it's it's a long game and I really I feel like that's where I'm at <laughs> is this is where I'm starting with my honoring indigenous voices and then once I become a RN then I'll start working with different whatever position I get it's going to be public health working with different tribes okay so do you plan to work with um Indian health services or something like that not right away I plan to work in public health first okay. that is going to serve indigenous um by populations and so I'm going to be interviewing for a couple of those positions coming up with King County. And that's where I'm going to start, <laughs> just to get some field experience and then go from there. Yeah. You're going to be fantastic in that role. Thank you. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like your voice and presence will be so, so needed there. Mm -hmm. And that's the number one thing um, I feel like tribes want is just to be heard is just to be seen like we're part of this community too even though the Muckleshoot people are not you know my native people I I understand what they're asking for because it's the same thing that my people in Crow would be asking for from a public health entity and number one is to just be heard and seen first instead of like the entity coming with solutions that haven't been asked for <laughs> you know it has to be the other way around first Conversations sure. have to happen first. Yeah. That's pretty special that your mom, um, I mean, it's completely beyond that she would be, like, so courageous to use her own first-hand experience in mm -hmm. that way and create, like, healing change. And um, I don't know. Now it's like you're going forward with similar efforts to like understand more stories and hear more and like, yeah. let those stories then be heard and it's kind of an offshoot of work that she's done in a way <laughs> yeah it is 100 percent. i've always looked up to them and the work that they've done they have a huge my parents have a huge network of indigenous leaders and motivators and amazing people and i just get your to... dad is also like a leader is that yeah, correct? he's our elected chief of our band. Okay. So he's he's very much in the political realm up in British Columbia and up in Canada. Wow, they have so much impact on people. <laughs> yep, he got elected. This is his third time, third term. It's a lot of work. How long is each term? Four years, I believe. Wow, so he's been doing that for like twelve years. Yeah. For yep, about twelve years. Yeah. Yeah, ever since I and I was still in the Air Force when it first happened, and my had my dad had no idea he was gonna get chief, because it's not an automatic thing. It's, uh, for band council, at that, uh, election, there was two council positions open and the chief position, and basically whoever gets the most votes of those three positions is gonna become chief, and he just assumed he was gonna be counselor again because he'd been counselor, like ten years before that, and. Yeah, he got the he got the most votes. He became chief, and he's just been plowing through all kinds of stereotypes and burning because of sorry. What sort of like stereotypes has he? So when I say that, I mean like he has elevated our band in such a way that I don't even think people thought it was possible to do with such a small band because our band is only like two hundred fifty people. It's not that much. And what Can he's... you tell me what is a band? Oh, yeah, sorry. 
So our nation is the Tanakh Nation up in British Columbia, and they have four bands. And the Yakunuki, or Lower Kootenai, is one band in the nation. And each band has its own tribal council, chief and council. And my dad is one of four of the chiefs in our nation up in British Columbia. And we have a lot of say for our own reserve, like little reservation. It's different from the States because the United States has like reservations that might be bigger and more of a territory that maybe one, I think in the States they don't call them chiefs, they call them chairmans, which, which are also elected positions. But up in Canada, um, they're bands. They're just, they kind of like divided you even more than you were already divided to, to cover this whole area. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's still, you still have regional politics to deal with. And so what my dad has done for our band is he has basically made it so that our finances are in line with what they want them to be because a lot of tribes can't get loans from banks because there's no collateral damage that they can or sorry not damage <laughs> collateral that they can collect if the the loan defaults so because you're on reserve land or you're on government land and so there's nothing they can collect the only way you can go through it is to be certified basically and that's what my dad did so my dad did the certification basically that means that all of uh, the band spending is now public anybody can view it anybody can see it not only did he get the certification to be able to get the loans he's also created so many business partnerships and taken over so many businesses and acquired different businesses in the area that now we're like one of the main employers in the region which was something that wasn't happening 12 years ago and so there's just, I feel like he's just completely like flipped the game upside down, which I think is phenomenal. And he's, my dad is such a, another thing that I, like, I really try to do and be and emulate is the thing that my dad does special in my eyes is that he can see past a lot of things. He can see into the future. He has visions for how he wants our people to be one day how he wants our community to be one day, how he wants indigenous people to be seen one day. Like, he can do that. He can envision what my nephew Mason's life could be one day. You know what I mean? Like, he's just got such a a, a great leadership vision like that. And it's something I definitely have to work at. <laughs> so this project of mine, Honoring Indigenous Voices, for me, felt like a starting point where I had to not only say, I want to do this, but I want it to grow and I want it to be this thing one day to try to like, you know, do something that my, like my dad has done. Yeah. While also doing the same kind of work that my mom has also been doing, if that makes sense. So it's kind of your own coming home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's really, that's really beautiful. Um, I mean, having that like forward thinking vision of like what something could be gives it a lot of momentum. Yes, and also a lot of uplifting, in my opinion, because sometimes it's tedious, right? Yeah. Sometimes the work is tedious, and you can get caught up in it, and it can maybe sometimes bring you down. But if you keep that vision in mind and can envision something to be bigger and better, not just for yourself, but for other people, it's definitely uplifting and more motivating to keep going on those hard days. Yeah, especially if you're dealing with, like, annoying logistics that are getting 
stressful at the last moment or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no matter what it is, no matter, even if it's like work is nursing or yeah. growing your podcast, like no matter what it is, I think that's one of the keys to, is to just have like a future vision and, and, and not, not let it go. But also at the same time, <laughs> also being adaptable to change and have other people come in and just make it even bigger and better than you thought it could be. Yeah, and being open to, like, how those things can Mm -hmm. unfold. Yeah. Yeah, I remember having that, like, thinking throughout nursing school. I just kept telling myself, like, okay, I'm working so hard at this. Like, I'm in the study hall for hours and hours because I want to care for people in the best way. Yeah. And I just had to, like, keep reminding myself because sometimes I was like, I hate this. Like, I hate studying this. But, like, that big picture of, like, no, someday, like... This knowledge will help care for people. And it will save lives. It matters. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I completely agree. And I understand nursing school is so much. They really pack it in. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Well, you kind of talked about, like, like your hope and vision for, like, the the future of honoring Indigenous voices. Mm -hmm. But, um, like, what are you most excited about, like, the event coming up um, just in a few weeks. What I'm most excited about is to be able to be partially in person because that was part of the original uh, design that I did. And so we got, we finally got confirmation on Friday that we got the biggest um, auditorium on campus, which usually holds over 400 people. Uh Yeah, I was so thankful. Of course, with COVID restrictions, we'll probably fill up half of that for social distancing, but even then, even having 200 students in person to meet the panelists, that's what I'm most looking forward to. That's what I've always wanted. I've always wanted to give the opportunity for the students to meet these beautiful people in person and to learn from them, to grow from them, and to be able to just understand that there's so much knowledge and comedy and wisdom and like things that native people bring to the table and yeah I'm excited to be in person but I'm also excited to still be able to do the webinar portion too because that was very that was another thing that surprised me last year was was the part where when we did the webinar we were reaching people all the way from Canada down to like Brazil people that were part of the conversation Working in different indigenous communities in both places, all places. Yeah, it was really special to me, and I am just excited to do the webinar. We'll record it this time. We'll put it on the IPI website when it's all done, um, if people are not able to make the event on the night of. so. But mostly I'm excited to be in person again. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I had, I mean, is there anything from your story that you want to share more about here? Um, Because I kind of asked a question about, like, how this topic of, um, excuse me, and we've kind of, you know, hit on some of this, but, like, how the topic of, like, residential schools has impacted your own story, Mm -hmm. and whatever you want to bring, if you want to share about that, I wanted to pose the question. Yeah, I did want to talk about my grandmother, Rosemary. So, she was born in the 1930s, at St. Xavier in Montana on the Crow Indian Reservation. And 
her story, I didn't really know a lot about it until after she passed away. And she passed away in 2006, and right before I left for the military. And I learned more about her story through my mom's work, through my mom's own healing, like what I was talking about, like what she was doing to face her addictions. And one of the things that my mom learned about healing is you have to tell the truth. And so in her own work with her own therapists and counselors and friends, she realized that when she's raising three indigenous girls, she's not just, she can't just do it for herself. She has to be honest with us, which is my number one quality that I've taken from my mom is to always be honest, to always tell the truth. And so even when it was really hard and maybe she thought we were too young, it didn't stop her. She always told us what was happening with her, what was happening in her healing journey, what the history of our family was, what my grandmother went through. And so like um, in her journey back to the Sundance with our people in Montana, she started asking questions of our family and she started wanting to know more about what really happened to my grandma when she was young. And so my grandparents, um, my grandma's siblings basically, started sharing the stories that they knew. They didn't know all of them, but they knew a lot of what my grandmother had gone through because she was the oldest of her siblings. And she was in that boarding school. And one of the main things that came that I, that I learned and came from the stories is that she carried a lot of shame. My grandmother had her own addictions, especially to alcohol. And she carried a lot of it because of what had happened in those schools. And number one, she was ashamed of being Crow. She was ashamed of um, our language. Not, not of it, but like she was meant to feel like it was so terrible what happened in those schools she didn't want her children including my mom to go through what she went through so she never taught us the language she never taught my mom the language in case my mom would have to go to those schools one day she didn't want my mom to endure the beatings and all of the terrible things they did in those schools and so it really changed her and she just I don't think she ever got to fully heal or deal with it, and it has a lasting impact on us now because I don't really know the language as much as I want to. I don't know the Crow language. It's more like baby speak. Like I know some words, and I like can kind of understand some things, but for the most part, I can't have a conversation in Crow, and that's one thing I will change. One thing I want to work towards is to relearn my language, and... That, I would say, is a long-lasting impact of these schools on my family specifically. And, yeah, I remember a few years ago, we went out to St. Xavier. My uncle lives really close to St. X, is what we call it. And I was with my mom and my sisters, and we were driving out towards St. Xavier, and we came across this, like, two-story, fallen-apart building that looked haunted. And it was kind of enclosed in this, like, really cheap wire fence. Um, but not like entirely closed. You could still kind of drive into the parking area if you wanted. It was, everything about it was completely abandoned and eerie and all the windows were smashed out, but this building was still standing and it really bothered me. And I was, I didn't want to get close to it. I didn't want to go near the building. I just stat, um, stood at the roadside and I looked from the roadside 
into the windows and I just kept feeling like, man, there must be like so many souls trapped in this building. Like we should just tear this building down. We should burn this building down. Like I hate this building. That was how I was feeling because that was the, the school. That was the boarding school that my grandma was forced to go to. Oh my God. And it was like just lit this huge anger in my stomach. I was just, I carried the anger for a long time. Um, and I just say, oh. <laughs> I've never hated a building before. I mean, that must have been so uncomfortable <laughs> to, to be there. Yeah. And it was just like, I was just devastatedly like sad thinking about all the things that she had gone through and other people that had to go to those schools, what they had gone through mm-hmm. and the stories that come out of those types of schools are horrific, like crimes against humanity kind of stuff. And yeah, that was part, I guess part of my journey is to, just, I'm still working on not being so angry at that kind of system and trying to do this work instead. I mean, anger sounds like an appropriate response. <laughs> yeah. And then most recently, when they discovered the graves, the unmarked graves, I wasn't, I didn't feel that kind of anger when that happened. I felt sad. I just, I cried a lot. Um. And I, I know I wasn't alone. There was a lot of people in my community that were just so devastatingly brought down by what we always knew was true, if that makes sense. That there was children that didn't survive. So the, the youngest one, one of the graves, was like three years old, the one at Kamloops. And it's very devastating. And so, again, even though I'm here in Seattle doing this work to bring this conversation to the students... I know there's lots of work that our communities are still doing at home too, which I, I'm part of those too. And I want to stay a part of those, those yeah. meetings and those ceremonies. And so th- there's still a lot of work going on at home too. Yeah. And grief and grieving that's happening as well. I mean, yeah, I feel like grief and anger and especially grief would be really, important to experience like in order to heal from those wounds um thank you for sharing your story i i I feel like one of the something I, i really appreciate about like the way you spoke about it is kind of um i don't know i feel that it brings to light a lot of grace for maybe potentially grace for your parents or grace for like your grandma that like without knowing those stories could I guess be bitterness Mm. I don't know if um that that resonates at all but I just I feel like those those wounds you know do have repercussions on your own experiences growing up likely and having like the understanding of like what your grandmother went through and and knowing more about what led to her addiction and like what led to these things like would inspire a lot of understanding and forgiveness and and grace like within within your family and um less of a feeling of like blame or feeling alone in in one's experience you know because yeah all of it was kind of interrelated Mm -hmm. and that's intergenerational trauma that's exactly what that is. Yeah. yeah. 
that's the kind of work my mom had to do and for herself and for us. And I'm really thankful that she has done that. My yeah. life would be completely different if she hadn't. That's really remarkable. I'm, it's cool that you were able to talk about her because I feel like she's even impacting <laughs> like this conversation because of her, her willingness to do that work. Yeah, I wrote a poem. Um, oh. I can read it to you. I wrote it because it was kind of like a, remem- a remembrance day uh, to wear your orange shirt and to recognize what happened. Yeah, I wanted to actually also bring that up. Cause yeah, that was on Friday? No, Thursday? It was October 1st, right? I thought it was the 30th of September. <laughs> you would know better than <laughs> I me. I don't, I actually don't. I've been so it's busy studying, new, I don't right? even, It's yeah. a new... I'm telling you, I've been so busy studying, I've barely kept up with a lot of <laughs> things I should be keeping up with. But that day, I wrote a poem. Um, I would love to hear it. In homage to those children, to those babies. I called it... This is another thing I do to get feelings and thoughts out. I write poetry sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, this one I called My Relationship with My Hair. I remember cutting it when my Auntie Roxy passed. I remember cutting it when my Grandma Rose passed. I remember cutting it when my great-grandma Louie passed. I remember the sharp pain in my heart when I heard the wailing at the funerals. Sometimes the ground was frozen and we needed a tractor to dig the grave for our loved ones. Sometimes the ground was muddy because it was raining on the days we put them to rest. Sometimes it was windy and dusty as we took a handful of dirt and tossed it on their caskets. I don't remember how many of our people we have buried just in my lifetime so far. Some lived to be very old and some passed away way before their time. Sometimes I wonder why our people are the ones who are in perpetual mourning while the rest of the world moves on. Our grief and loss never seems to have time to heal before we lose another relative. When you compound this with historical trauma, marginal health care, poor housing, degrading policies, and broken treaties, it reveals the perfect recipe to create a targeted population that is forced to live in poverty. A people mostly erased and mostly forgotten from mainstream North American thought like some page in a book that was burned long ago. My people suffer, my people grieve, and sometimes it leads them to destroy themselves without knowing why. That's the internal damage that intergenerational trauma has done. Let me tell you where I stand today. I stand in the middle of the chaos of my life's choices. I stand with the 10,000-year history of our people in my blood. I stand proudly with my family's name, I stand with a strong spirit and clear eyes that see everything. I see all of the hurt, I feel all of the pain, and I myself grieve for the relatives who were just babies and children when they were taken away. On this day, I wear my hair long, proudly knowing that it is something they can no longer touch. My relationship with my hair is my connection to my people. It is my strength and it is my mother's pride, and her mother, and her mother's mother. Do you see now? Do you see the beauty in my people? We are standing in spite of every termination policy, in spite of every greedy colonized agenda, and in the face of blatant racist systems that still exist. We are still here. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for sharing that. That was so incredible. <laughs> Thank you for letting me share it. Of course. That was a gift. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, so you wrote that on Orange Shirt Day? Yes. Okay. Yep. I need, I had a lot. I was studying for like eight hours that day. And then I was like seeing everybody's posts and I was like really missing home because everybody was together, right? Mm -hmm. Grieving together. And I just needed to get it out. I needed, so I just wrote it and then posted it on Facebook and it was well received by like our friends and family. That's awesome. Thank you. Poetry is a way that I also respond to grief. And so I, that's really, yeah, it's a powerful way to get something out and also connect with others mm -hmm. since you shared it. Thank you. I definitely wanted to talk about Jaylee's songs. Yes. And your connection to Jaylee. Yes. Thank you for remembering to bring that up. <laughs> I think it's a good segue because I feel like music is poetry. It is like exactly that's that's what it is <laughs> <laughs> music has turned into poetry and vice versa it's like for Jaylee I I got permission uh from her so that we can share this song and Jaylee is a person that I went to high school with and in high school we were acquaintances we weren't super duper close um and I think mostly just because when you're in high school you kind of just stick to people that are in your grade your group now Jay Lee is an artist in Canada, and she is at a point in her life where she is expressing the kinds of trauma that she's went gone through and is healing through with her own family and rediscovering her roots to her grandmother, because her grandmother, her father, was actually taken away from her grandmother, and that's what this song is about. It's called Child of the Government. And it's kind of about erasure, about what the institutions in Canada have done to Native people, including the, the Catholic Church. And it's very uh, strongly depicted in the music video as well. Mm -hmm. And so when the song came out, she definitely got a lot of hate about the song being anti-government, anti-church, anti-all kinds of things to try... I think to shut her down to make her feel bad a lot of people were denying that this was even real like you know what I mean like that kind of stuff was happening and so when I talked to her I reached out to her and I just told her I was so proud of her for telling the truth and that when you are in this realm of telling the truth that's going to happen there's going to be people be people who deny that this happened to native people and to not focus on that, not to, you know, like, let it get you down, to just keep going with your journey, keep telling the truth, because you're, you're, you're so powerful in, in your platform already, that this is just gonna heal so many people, you have no idea, like, what this means to us in our community, and that I'm just so proud of her, and eventually those, those recognitions did happen, they, they came, right, for the song, and for the artistry, and it just blurred yeah. out all that extra noise <laughs> and I'm I mean, happy that it did <laughs> that's incredible because I feel like the music industry in particular is an area where a lot of folks in order to make it like have to conform to what's I guess palatable mm. but then it's 
the irony of that is like the more that as an artist one can step into one's truth, the more powerful their art will be because it's more vulnerable. Yeah. And it seems like Jaylee is like popping off and very established. <laughs> so I'm not surprised. <laughs> I'm so proud of her. Like uh, like you asked about our relationship. I feel like now it's more like um like she feels like a little sister to me in doing this work and I will always stand behind her for what she wants to do and stand up for her and be there whenever she reaches out or we just like yeah whatever she needs I'm here and I'm very proud of her yeah well I'm so glad that we've been gifted her song to feature <laughs> yes. um so awesome so thank you shout out to Jaylee yeah thank you for Jaylee being Wolf. awesome thanks for pursuing your art with mm -hmm. boldness <laughs> yep please check out the video it's very powerful I'm excited to watch it mm -hmm. well um thank you thank you Misty thank you for sharing this space with me <laughs> thanks Claire great conversation I knew it was going to be thank you oh hey I just got
Thank you so much, Misty, for talking with me on this podcast episode. I was so blessed by your vulnerability and hearing your story, um, and I'm just really inspired to keep on learning. Thank you, listener, for being here to listen. If you want to check out Indi- Honoring Indigenous Voices at Seattle University, it's happening on October 25th, and I will link the event in the podcast notes. Um, I also want to thank Jaylee Wolf for sharing your song Child of the Government on this episode. You can find Jaylee on Instagram at Jaylee Wolf, that's J-A-Y-L-I-W-O-L-F, and she has some amazing songs and just beautiful, beautiful things coming from her. Um, I also would encourage you, if you're not already, um, if you are a settled person like myself, consider um, donating monthly to Real Rent Duwamish. This is an organization based in Seattle, which is unceded Duwamish territory. Um, And this is a means of repairing past colonial damage through giving reparations monthly to the Duwamish tribe, and it's going for um, healthcare and resources to improve, um, improve their lives and to give back from, um, to the tribe where the city that I now reside on was built from. Thank you for being here to listen. Today's episode was recorded, edited, and mixed by me, Podcast intro music is by Afterspace, whose beats you can find on SoundCloud. My logo was created by Sarah Day. Podcast promo art is by Aubrey McMichael. If you liked the episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or share it with somebody who you think would like it. Thank you so much for being here, and I'll catch you in the next episode, stars. Blessings.